If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are going to be in verses 12 through 18 this morning. I've entitled this sermon in the service of the King. So far this morning, we have already sung about our King. We have heard a psalm read about our King. And we're going to discuss this morning what it means to be in the service of our King, the risen and ascended Savior, the King, Jesus Christ. For the next three weeks, we're going to zero in on some of the foundational truths of what it means to be a biblical church. And the reason for that is threefold. Number one, I'm going to be going on vacation in about three weeks, and I didn't really want to get into an in-depth study of Romans 9 to 11 and then be off for a couple of weeks and then back in later. So I'd rather just wait, and then we will tackle Romans 9 to 11 when I get back, and we'll cover that through the fall. Secondly, we're going to be studying Romans 9 to 11, and I would like to have a little bit more time to really dig in and understand that and package that in a way that I hope is clear and understandable for you. And then uh, the third reason is that really every year, 18 months, it is really profitable for every local church to go back and remind themselves of what it is that God expects of us as a church. What are we supposed to be doing? Uh, Why did he leave us here? What is our goal? What's our mission? Uh, What is it that we are uh, commissioned by him to do? How do we honor him in every area of our church life? And um, over the last... 18 months or so, a lot of changes have occurred. Um, Many new people have joined our church, and so I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity to just go back and review some of the basics. Three weeks on the foundations. Week number one, in the service of the king, we're gonna look at leadership. Next week, we're gonna look at service, and the third week, we're gonna look at the gospel. Leadership, service, and the gospel. And those are going to be given to you in increasing importance. The least important thing among those three is leadership, and I'll explain why, even though I so often say everything rises and falls on leadership. The next one would be service. How do we in the body use our gifts, and how do we obey Christ and honor him with that? But then most important will be how do we truly understand, apply, and engage with the gospel as a local church. But for this morning, in the service of the king, we're going to look at leadership. So follow along in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to pick this up, as I said, in verse 12, this is God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Leadership is um, a topic that is of great importance to almost everyone. There are books that have been written about leadership in the home, books written about leadership in the corporate world, uh, written about leadership in the political realm, 
and of course, leadership in the church. And it's important because even here, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addresses on on more than one occasion what it means to be a godly leader in a church and what it means to react to and respond to those leaders and what leadership and authority and responsibility and accountability actually look like within the body. Jesus taught on this before the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The apostles taught on this before the canon had been fully written and closed. We now, with all of the gospels and the epistles and the book of Revelation, can see that God has given to us once and for all his instruction on leadership. And this is one of the places where it shows up. And so I have two objectives this morning. One is to help you understand leadership. That's point number one. We're going to understand it better. And number two is to appreciate it, to appreciate it. So number one, I want you to understand it. That's going to be in verses 12 through 14, and then I want you to appreciate it. And that's in verses 15 through 18. So let's begin by talking about understanding leadership, because in my estimation, it is very easy to either on the one hand think too much of it, or on the other hand, think too little of it. It is possible to hold leaders to such a standard that really no human being could attain to it, or to treat them as nothing but hired help. It is possible to be in a position where your expectations are too high or too low. There are even times where leadership is basically ignored completely and authority is given to the person who just is able to articulate things the fastest and the loudest. And so this morning, we're going to get into understanding leadership from a biblical perspective, and it begins in verse 12. Please look at what the apostle says. He begins by addressing the church here, and he says, we ask you brothers, and we're just going to stop right there. We ask you. The word ask, it's a word that meant to ask from a position of privilege, to ask from a higher position. It's a superior asking a subordinate. It's not a command, it's, it's not an order, but you understand that this person is in a position of superiority and so it is not only your honor, but it is also the expectation that you will obey. And so that's how Paul structures it. He says, I am asking you brothers. Now recently we talked about this too, so I wanna reiterate it. When you read the word brothers in the New Testament, as it applies to the church, that is not limited to men. This would be brothers and sisters. If your translation says brothers and sisters, that's great. It would just be best if they italicized it so that you knew it wasn't actually in the text. But he says brothers, meaning brethren, the whole church. It's a little bit different when Paul uses the word sons, and we described that a little while ago. But here, the brothers is everybody, everybody in the church. And he says, I want all of you to do something. I want all of you to respect those who labor among you. They are the ones who do the hard work. They are the ones who do the exhausting work of labor. And it's important that we understand that this work that they are doing is a work that is to be respected because that word respect means to know. Write that down in your Bible if it doesn't say that already. It's to know them. It's it's, it's a Greek word that means that you respect them because you see them. It's a seeing that leads to knowing. 
You cannot be a leader if you are not present. You certainly cannot be an elder if you are not present, if you are not visible. Apart from all of the criteria given to us in the New Testament for what qualifies an elder, I would like to also add church attendance. (laughs) It needs to be a top priority for you. You have to be wherever the body corporately gathers and you have to do that consistently and faithfully with your family. Because one of the things that you will understand if you are a leader is that to be respected, you must be seen. And when you are seen, you are evaluated, you are observed. And so you live a life worthy of the respect because of your example. So they are told here, asked, but it's implied that they would do it, to respect, to see and know those who labor, a word that means really to the point of exhaustion, those who are with them. But then the next part needs some clarification. And this is where the understanding comes in. It says, and those who are over you in the Lord. That is not a good translation. Because what that implies is over you in really a purely authoritative way. And even though there is certainly authority and responsibility and accountability in church leadership, here he's not talking primarily about over you, having authority over you. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter 5, warns very carefully that elders are not to lord over the people and be domineering. This is a different kind of teaching here. It's not a lording over, it's not an over you in an authoritative sort of suppressing kind of way. It really means to be in front. That's all the word means. To stand in front. To be willing to say, follow me. I'll go. I'll be the first. I'll do that. It means that when somebody has a need and they put it out there to the public, you're the one who raises your hand and says, I'll do that. I'll volunteer to help. I'll volunteer to serve. I'll volunteer, and in my volunteering and in my action, I am leading, but I am leading by example and by an example of service. It means to be at the front. Now, I grew up in Canada where every year uh, the geese escape Canada because winter comes. And anybody with even the intelligence of a goose leaves when winter comes. I mean, in fact, right now, unfortunately, they're the only Canadian citizens that are allowed to leave the country. But anyway, they leave and they leave in masses. And so all throughout the fall, you hear them honking overhead as they fly in these gigantic V formations. And and as recently as in 2015, I read an article in the LA Times about why they fly in a V formation. And apparently it really helps them to reduce wind drag. They kind of drag behind the goose in front of them. But there's always one goose at the front. There's always one goose at the tip of that V. And scientists have realized that over time, what happens is that particular goose gets more tired than the rest because that's the goose that is dealing with all of the uh, headwinds. It's the first one to cut through. And so what they've noticed is that they actually take turns, that the front will go to the back and the next one will come up and they'll actually take turns being at the front because just like Paul said earlier of leadership, it can be exhausting sometimes. You're constantly facing those headwinds of the decisions that come with leadership and the responsibility that comes with it. And so what you have here is a, Simple case of somebody who is willing to go to the front, willing to literally lead by serving. And so, 
He goes on to explain what that means. They labor among you and they lead you, but it is not by their own will and their own desires. It's not by their own plan or their own vision, but in the Lord. If you are a leader here in this room, any kind of leader, you are only going to lead to the degree that the Lord leads you. Everything else is just going to be your own efforts, your own speculation, your own ideas, and those aren't worth following. To lead and to lead effectively and to lead humbly is to lead in the Lord, in his will, his word, his standard. And so in order to understand what it means to really stand before and to do that in the Lord, I want to take you to a couple more passages just to reiterate it. First of all, look back at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We just wrapped up Romans chapter 8. We'll be in Romans chapter 12 in 2037. Romans chapter 12. I always go here when I talk about spiritual gifts because instead of going to like 1 Corinthians where Paul is primarily corrective and the Corinthian church was a hot mess and they were using gifts in all the wrong ways, here in the Roman church it was pretty good and so Paul just clarifies what those gifts are and so if you pick it up, you'll notice there beginning in verse 3 that he has a conversation with them about spiritual gifts and then by the time we get down to verse 6 he describes them, look what he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and here it is, the one who leads with zeal. Leadership is a gift, a spiritual gift. What it means is that you serve with that spiritual gift and the strength that the Spirit supplies, like we saw in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. It means that you serve, not, not, not begrudgingly, you don't uh, get forced into it, you don't get shoved into the role, uh, you don't serve in a way that makes everyone realize how hard it is and how discouraged you are and how much time you're putting in and how much you wish you didn't have to do this. You do it with zeal. Zeal means that, that spirit-filled enthusiasm to Get out in front and do something. You see what needs to be done and you want to do it. Beloved, we're at a stage in our church's life where people will see more things that need to be done than we have people to do it. We are at a stage in our church's life where people will see more things that need to be done than there are people who will do it. And I know this because people continually come up to me and say, we should do this. To which I sometimes want to say, if I'm particularly in the flesh, you mean you want me to do it. Or I want to say, yeah, it's a wonderful idea. When do you plan on starting? People will say, well, the church ought to do this. Well, excuse me, you are the church. The church doesn't do anything. The church is the assembly of the people who make up the church. And so if the church isn't doing something, it means you're not doing something. And if you're identifying these things that the church is not doing, I would recommend to you that it's the Holy Spirit prompting you to do it yourself. I love when people come to me and tell me what they have done or what they are doing. Not permission can I do it. We don't stand in the way of you in ministry to give you permission. We stand beside you in ministry to get rid of the barriers so that you can do what God's put on your heart to do. 
How many churches are there where the pastor or the elders set themselves up as this bureaucracy that has to check off on everything before you're allowed to serve? No, we're the opposite here. We blow up roadblocks. That's what we like to do. We like to fund the things where people are already doing it and it's bearing fruit. We want you to feel like this is a church where you are able to do the best work of your life in a spiritual sense because the door is wide open for ministry. Whatever you see that needs to be done, ask yourself, is God putting it on my heart to do it? Too many people come to the church so that the church will fix their marriage or the church will raise their kids for them because they're too lazy or distracted or not willing to. Or that the church will fix their employment problem or that the church will give them friendship and relationships or that the church will be the one who comes along to meet all of their felt needs. Beloved, listen, the church is there to meet very similar needs to those but not as its primary mission. The primary mission of the church is to give believers the opportunity to use their spiritual gifts for the building up and the edification of that very body. So do that. Ask yourself, what am I gifted to do? And how can I use those gifts for the building up of this body? Please don't be one who is out there completely spiritually unemployed, never using your gifts, simply coming to either observe or be a spectator or simply a taker and never giving. All of the gifts that we mentioned there earlier, and by the way, the last one is mercy. I mean, you can show mercy. Anyone can show mercy. Some are uniquely gifted, though. Do that for the building up of the body. That's what it means to lead. That's what it means to lead. Number two, there's a text in 1 Timothy 3. Look over there. This is the description of an elder. And I like to go into this one because, of course, we're in that season now where we've asked our church members to provide us with some suggestions of people who may serve in that capacity, and we've been in touch with with all those men, we're grateful for the list of men that are open to considering that. But just notice here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll just pick a few verses here where the word is used. In verse 4 of chapter 3, it says that he must manage his own household well. That's the same word. He must manage his household, be over his household, lead his household well. Verse 5 of the same chapter It says, for if someone does not know how to, again, manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Do you see the connection between manage, lead, be over, and care for? So I think even within that text, Paul is further defining what does lead mean? What does be over something mean? It means to care for it. It means to love it. It means to protect it. It means to guide it. The, uh, the elders and pastors are meant to lead and guide their own families or else how can they possibly do that in the church? Go down to verse 12. Same principle, let the deacons must be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households. Men, listen carefully. We're going to talk about this, by the way, on Saturday. Not this coming Saturday because that's not when the breakfast is, but the following Saturday. Because our topic is going to be lies men believe about women. And we are going to talk about the fact that one of those lies is that God gave you a wife so that she could manage the house and raise the children for you. Well, you and often did whatever you thought was more important. There are multiple examples in the Bible where you men, you husbands, you fathers are told that you are the ones that are to lead by serving. Your children and your household. There's more. Chapter 5, verse 17, still in 1 Timothy. Chapter 5 and verse 17, let the elders who, here's our word, rule well. Once again, I don't know why the translators can't just stick with one term, but anyway, 
How about this? Let the elders who manage well be considered worthy. How about the elders who serve well be considered worthy? The ruling idea can so often be hijacked into something that is done in a way that is unspiritual. So it is a service. All of this is done in the Lord. All of this is done in the Lord. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If we are going to respect those by knowing who they are, by seeing them in our midst with their wives and children and identifying them as examples for us, the ones who labor to the point of exhaustion at the tip of the formation as it were, the ones who are among us and known to us who manage within the household of the Lord and under his authority, then we must accept from them the occasional admonishment that comes, the admonishment that comes. Notice what he says here, that they are going to admonish you. That's a word that means to correct. And it's a word that literally means to take something and place it in your mind. Place it in your mind. It means you're going to have a conversation with that leader. And that leader is going to take something that you have not got your mind on, and they're going to put your mind on it. Admonishment is not just rebuke and correction and a stern kind of lecture. It's a brother, sister, you're not thinking biblically. You're not thinking correctly. Let me put something in your mind. Your mind is missing this component. And that's a a biblical, scriptural, spiritual encouragement. And you come alongside and you do that out of love for them. And that can be hard work. That can be hard work. I remember... uh, When I lived up in LA, I drove a vehicle that was a front-wheel drive, and I took it in to get new tires, and the guy said, you need new tires on the front, but not on the back. And I said, how can that be? They're the same age, and they've gone everywhere together. Like, I don't do anything on on two wheels. He said, well, the thing is, you have a front-wheel drive vehicle. I'm mechanical enough to, to have already known that, so I thanked him for the insight. But I said, how exactly does that relate to the tires? And he said, well, you have to understand, that on a front-wheel drive car, the tires at the front are the tires that are always dealing with the pressure that comes from the torque of the motor and moving the vehicle, and, and then also they have to deal with the stress of steering the vehicle. And I said, let me get this straight. They wear out sooner because they have to deal with all of the torque that comes from basically moving that vehicle and then also the pressure that comes from steering it. And he said, yes. And I forgot completely what it had to do with tires, and I remembered that sounds a lot like leadership. That sounds a lot like leadership. You get worn out sooner because you're the one who is involved in, in trying to move something, trying to keep something going, and then you're also the one who's trying to steer it, and there's always that resistance. There's always power where there's pressure and pressure where there's power, and so he says to these believers, when those people reach out to you to admonish you and correct you, receive it as from the Lord. Don't fight them on it. It's hard for them to do it. It's not easy. It's not enjoyable. It's not something you wake up eager to do. Believe me, I say that from experience. It's the meeting on your calendar that you wish wasn't on your calendar. It's the phone call on your list you wish you didn't have to make. It's not pleasant, but it's necessary. You have to be willing to correct if you're willing to lead. Now, this happens within the church in different ways. Look over at Romans again. Romans chapter 15, right there at the end. Paul does this faithfully in all the churches, whether they're good churches or churches that are struggling. Look at Romans chapter 15 and 
Verse 14 in particular. He's wrapping up the letter and he's giving them some very personal comments at the end. And he says to them, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. The instruction here is that same word. It's the admonishing. It's the putting into the mind. He says, brothers, I love this church because I know that there's so many of you that are able to put good words and good thoughts into the minds of the people in your church to keep it strong and to keep it focused and to keep it biblical and to keep it glorifying God. But what about those who don't? Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Just over a couple of pages. First Corinthians chapter 4, as I said earlier, this would not be a model church. First Corinthians chapter 4 and beginning in verse 14. Paul says here, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. He had been correcting them in a significant way. However, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul says, I'm not trying to make you ashamed, but I am trying to admonish you. I'm trying to correct you. I'm trying to put this in your mind as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. Just hold that place for a moment. Paul is saying this, look. I need to admonish you and correct you. I'm not trying to embarrass you or humiliate you, but here's the reality. You've got a whole lot of counselors and not a lot of fathers. The fathers are the ones that, through the gospel, have been serving you and ministering to you, giving you the gospel in the first place and then giving you that solid food, the good teaching, week in, week out. But you've got a bunch of counselors as well. And in those days... The counselors were the other writers and the other philosophers and the other thinkers. Now, if it was a problem back then that a bunch of random sources were influencing the thinking of people in the church such that they were not carefully and consistently listening to their pastors and elders and teachers, if it was a problem back in 64 AD, imagine what kind of problem that is today. I mean, imagine how Paul would be trying to pastor churches if there were podcasts in the first century. Dozens, hundreds, thousands of people gathering in local assemblies, having heard hour upon hour upon hour of influential teaching from people they do not know scattered all over the globe and then the pastor has 45 minutes to try to fix it all. No wonder it's difficult. No wonder people are holding on to really, really bad teaching because they're getting it from all these other places all the time. These counselors, these people who do not know you, do not love you, do not serve you, are not mutually accountable to you in a covenant relationship in a local church. Some of them have absolutely no training whatsoever or shouldn't even be doing what they're doing, but we're so indiscriminate sometimes in what we allow in. Listen, admonishment often comes as a correction to those who have simply been directed by something that isn't biblical. Be receptive to the loving correction. Paul continues on. Just look back there at 1 Corinthians 
4, because it's a serious matter. He says, that's why I sent you Timothy. <laughs> I had to send Timothy to try to straighten you out. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. <laughs> he says, some of you are doubting me. You think I'm, like, it's a threat? You think I won't come back? I gave my life for that church. You think I'm not going to care what you guys are saying and believing? No, he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not with the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. There is an infinite amount of talk out there. Where's the power? Where's the change? The power of a changed life comes from being in the covenant community from being in the place where the people of God gather to hear his word, to submit to it together in accountability, knowing one another, not independently in an isolated way, listening to something on your headphones. There is a room, there's room for instruction, but, but there's also a great degree of danger for destruction of what is good. And so he wraps up with a rather serious warning. Look what he says in verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness. <laughs> he says, don't make me come over there. You know what he means, right? Coming with a rod. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but how many of you got the rod when you were a kid? Like a real rod. Not like, I didn't get time out when I was a kid. I didn't like get my toy taken away, like, oh, that'll teach me. I got a rod. Or like a tree branch, it kind of depends how bad I was. And I remember when it was coming. I remember the feeling. I remember the feeling when it came, but I remember the feeling when it was coming too. Because the instrument of choice in my household growing up was a wooden spoon. Yeah. Wooden spoon. And I knew I'd cross the line when I heard my mother quickly open up the junk drawer and go rummaging through for the wooden spoon. To this day, when people rummage through drawers in the kitchen, I get a little shudder. Here it's come. She's watching this. She came with the wooden spoon. Wha-bam! Till it broke one day. And I laughed. Children, don't laugh. Because it wasn't too long after that that she bought something made by Rubbermaid, it's a spatula. It's about the size of a pizza box. And it had a handle made of like petrified wood. That did it, that did the trick. I, I, I tell you, I'll never forget those days. Paul's saying the same thing, don't make me come to you like that. Now, what does that do to people? Look over at 2 Thessalonians 3. You go to the second book of Thessalonians and we'll wrap up this little thought here and then we'll move on. But it's important because admonition is a huge part of ministry. It's a huge part of loving one another within the body of Christ. And it is one of the most difficult things to do. Because sometimes you have to admonish people that you really appreciate. Sometimes you have to admonish people that are older than you and have been walking with the Lord for many more decades than you. You've got to admonish people who you know aren't going to respond well because that's their pattern, that's their behavior. But you still have to be faithful. Look what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Remember, same idea here, the brothers. As for you, brothers, 
do not grow weary in doing good. What's the good thing he's going to tell them to do? We always use that verse, right? Don't, go, don't grow weary in doing good. Well, the context of that is what's to follow. What's the good thing you're not supposed to grow weary in? It's not, you don't grow weary in doing good things you like to do. You grow weary in doing good things that you have to do that are not fun. So he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. That's pretty intense, isn't it? He says, um, separate yourself from that person who won't obey so that they will feel the shame of the reproach of that separation, but it's not, a, it's not meant to only shame, it's restorative. It's meant to bring the person back. It's meant to do its work and then bring the person back. Because see what he says in verse 15, do not regard him as an unbeliever, but warn him as a brother. So yes, there is an amount of shame. Yes, there is an identifying of sin pattern, but it is not a permanent isolation. It is just to do its work so that, that person would repent, see the error of their ways, and come back and be established. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll continue our study here of what it means to understand church leadership. What does it mean to truly be in the service of the king? You are to observe, note those who are serving you in the Lord and admonish you. And now, let's continue in verse 13. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. This is the next part. You are to esteem them. That's a word that means to regard them as a leader. Give them the respect as a leader. Leadership, as I said, is often something where we think too little of it. Clearly, Paul is identifying leaders. He is saying that we have them in the church. Uh, It's not just a free-for-all. There are some who are given the very important stewardship of Leadership, And so you're to esteem them, regard them, and you're to do it exceedingly. It's the Greek conjunction, huper. It means where we get hyper from in English. You have an exceeding respect for these people that are in leadership. Not by bestowing titles on them and not by giving them fancy robes, but by simply honoring them through your gracious obedience, cooperation, receptivity. And you do all of this in love, in genuine agape love because of the work that they are doing for you. And as a result, I believe, you will be at peace. All of this will lead to peace, peace in the church, just like peace in the home, and peace anywhere else where everyone learns how to live in harmony. So the first point, understanding church leadership, understanding service to the king, don't think too little of it, but secondly, don't think too much of it either. Don't think too much of it either. Uh, The people that are put in a position of leadership are not unique in the sense that no one else could do the work. Uh, They're merely set apart. Because really, the work of leading in the church falls to us as well. So let's look at verse uh, 14. He says here now to the rest of us, and we urge you brothers, back to the whole church, What are you to do? Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, this is a very important section because all of the instruction that is given here is to the whole church. Do you understand that? The whole church. So I have the duty this morning to remind you that if you are part of this local church, 
that you have responsibilities as well. That I can say by the authority of scripture that you have certain responsibilities. That you ought to be shepherding the flock as well. That we shepherd one another. That we do not outsource that to leaders. We don't say it's only the elders who do that, but we do it ourselves. And we do some pretty significant work. You'll notice what he says here. There's three in particular. Number one, you are to admonish. By the way, it's the same word as we saw earlier. The unruly. The unruly. Uh, This means people who cannot get in line. People who are against order is how you could translate that, literally. People who are against order. The non-orderly people. You need to admonish them. You need to get them in line. You do as brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, you have to encourage the faint-hearted. The word encourage there means to, to talk to them from close by. So it's like when you put your arm around somebody and you just speak right into their ear. It means bring them close. You're not yelling at them from afar. You're coming alongside and you're putting your arm around them and you're encouraging them from up close. And here it's the word faint-hearted. In the original it just says weak-souled. People of weak soul. The, the, the fragile people, the weak people, the frail people, the, the ones who are constantly stumbling. You know, genuine shepherding is like Christ. He will not split or destroy that bruised reed. We've got, we've got reeds up here, and, and all of the reeds that were bruised last week, meaning that they've gotten bent over, and, and, and so they kind of flop over. They're really weak, and they're really, really frail. You know, someone came in and broke them all off so that we have nice, nice reeds here. We have no weak reeds today. Jesus would not have done that. I'm not saying what you did was wrong. It looks much nicer now. But maybe we could have a few bruised reeds on here to remind us that that person who's weak and flopping over and can't even lift themselves up, you know, there are churches that say, well, that's certainly not attractive. Don't, don't need that person. You ever heard of that happening? Has that ever happened to you? They're weak-souled, faint-hearted people. And what they need is attention and care. And they need one of these stronger reeds to prop them up. So you just put it over here beside some of the stronger ones, and then it'll stay up. Now, that doesn't mean that you get to decide how everyone is going to minister to you because you're just needy. But what it means is that when you go through a trial and when you struggle and people come alongside you and they put their arm around you, it's going to be to prop you up, not to shame you. We all need that. And I can guarantee you this. There are not enough elders to do that work alone if it was just for them. You have to help us. You all have to see that going on in this church. And I'm talking to this church. I'm talking to this body right here gathered. We do that here. That means that you need to be known. You need to know each other. And you need to be willing to receive from somebody else in this body the loving care that's extended to you through encouragement in times of faint-heartedness and weakness. There's a third thing you need to be able to do. And that is to be patient with them. I'm sorry, to help the weak, the weak. Here the word help means to literally stick to something, to grab it and to pull it along, to be devoted to it, to not let it go, to not let it drop. 
And for here, it's the weak. And this little different than the little sold ones. This is the one who is frail and feeble. This is the one who really has no strength. You've got to come along and help them, not by putting your arm around them and encouraging them, and, and, and not just by admonishing them and telling them what to do. This one takes it even a step further. It's not a distant command. It's not a close-up command. It's literally holding on to them and pulling them through whatever dark season they're in. That's what it means to, to help. That's real help, by the way. And, and I'm afraid to say again, we as a church have to constantly, humbly, intensively evaluate how well we're doing as a body with that. And if we see that there is a need, may we be the first to address the need before we push the need up to some professional to handle. May we be the first to admonish. May we be the first to encourage. May we be the first to help. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be a lot of this, which is why Paul tacks at the end, uh, on the, at the end here to be patient with them all. I mean, it's easy to be impatient, isn't it? I mean, I can admonish once, or I can encourage once, or I can help once, but when you have to admonish over and over and over again, after a while, it gets a little wearisome. You know, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of having to keep doing it. I'm tired of having to keep pull that, pulling that sheep out of the hole. Why won't you stop going in the hole? And yet we do that over and over again. Why? Because we're patient with others. Because who's patient with us? Christ. I mean, come on. Nobody is going to be able to live in such a way that would justify your impatience with them. And you will never be living in such a way that Christ will not have to be patient with you. So let's just acknowledge the reality of it. That no matter what, we're always going to be the recipients of patience and therefore by his spirit we can be the ones who give patience to. Now, that is what it means to understand leadership in terms of the service of the king. Number two, let's talk about what it means to appreciate it. This part will go faster. What does it mean to appreciate it? Look down at verse 15. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Verse 15, see that, perceive, discern, identify. What are you looking for? You're looking for what is evil. What is evil? Evil here is that inner corruption. It, it, it's actually called the inner rottenness. It's something that has gone bad from the inside. When I was in high school, got a job working in a fruit and vegetable uh, grocery store. And uh, the, the, the business model was that this guy would buy up truckloads of fruit and vegetables that had gotten delayed in a storm or something had happened and, and, and kind of the top tier grocery stores would no longer accept the food. It, it wasn't at the standard that they would accept in their stores and so it was kind of uh, lowered down into a different tier and, and he would buy this stuff up on auction and then it would arrive at our store and we would unload it and usually when you were unloading it you had to throw away about a third of it because it just wasn't any good. And, and, you know, it's not a big deal to, to throw away bananas that had gotten rotten. Because, you know, rotten bananas aren't that bad. 
In fact, some people make stuff out of rotten bananas. They let the bananas get almost rotten, right? And then it makes better banana bread or something. That's what I hear. I do a lot of baking, and so, you know, I know that. Oranges, rotten oranges are a little more gross, you know, because they're furry and white. That's just not how an orange ought to look. But the worst thing to have to deal with was when the watermelons came. Watermelons come in a big, large container, and they're offloaded with a forklift, and you have to reach down into the container, and you have to pull up each watermelon to determine whether or not it's rotten. And either way, you've got to remove them from this uh, container so you can't get out of it just by looking at it. You reach down and you pick one up, and this is how you know it's rotten, because you go to pick it up, and your hands go into it. And this putrid contents leaks all over you, and it's horrendous. And, and, and I told you you learned something this morning. Don't mess with watermelons that have gone bad. But that's rotten from the inside. I can't tell by looking at it. It doesn't give me the mold like an orange. It doesn't give me the blackened outside like a banana. I gotta reach in there to find out what's inside. This is the evil, the internal rottenness that, that Paul's talking about. And he says, you need to be on the lookout for anything that is, that is evil in the body. Anything that has that internal rottenness of sin, that internal rottenness of division and, 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 and uh, a lack of love for people. And you need to identify that. And you need to make sure that you never allow that to perpetuate within the body. Don't let anybody repay evil for evil. If they get a dose of that from somebody else, you stop them from giving it back because that's the temptation. But in everything, strong contrast, strongest contrast you can have in the Greek language, but in absolute contrast, always seek, pursue, chase, you could translate that. Pursue what is intrinsically good and do that for everybody. That's what it means to appreciate true leadership. You're willing to say, I'll go out on a limb and I will return good for evil because I know the benefits of being in a place where evil is not responded to with more evil. Now he goes on to give you some application in 16 through 18. Really three very simple points of application. These are two word verses in the original and the modifier comes first. So verse 16 would actually be translated at all times rejoice or experience God's grace is how you could translate that. At all times, experience God's grace. Be a recipient of grace and an appreciator of grace at all times. And no matter what's going on, people can look at you as somebody who is basking in the experience of the grace of God, even in the most difficult circumstances. Number two, you are to unceasingly offer prayers to God. Unceasingly. That means whenever you are not specifically doing something else or prohibited from praying, be in a spirit of prayer and communication, always offering these to God. And then finally, in everything, thank God. In everything, give thanks. You will learn to appreciate what you have in a healthy church when you are able to give thanks to God in all circumstances, to pray continually for the people and the leadership, and to rejoice at all times, even when you go through a difficult season. That is what it means to be in the service of our king, because there will be times where he sends us on a mission that isn't pleasant. There will be times where we will be sent into a battle where the outcome is unknown. 
But one thing I can tell you for sure is he will never send us into battle the way that David sent Uriah into battle, and that is to die in order to cover up his own wrongdoing. He will never, ever cause you to go through anything that is not good for you or is not on the receiving end of his love. And we know that because all of these things conclude with the following statement. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's his will. He desires this. Desires that you understand what it means to be in the service of the king as a leader, that you not think too much or too little of that role. It also means that you appreciate it, that you see that there is something there to give thanks for, and you do your part to make sure that you perpetuate it in a way that brings glory to God, because that's his will. People say to me sometimes, I'm trying to find God's will. I say, well, go to 1 Thessalonians 5 and start there. This is God's will for your life. Do that and experience the joy that comes from being somebody who is not only able to take a list of requirements and obey them, but is able to obey because they've been covered in the righteousness of Christ already. You see, gospel realities play out in the church when genuine believers demonstrate the fact that they understand that they can grow in grace because their sins have been forgiven. Because they grow in grace knowing their sins have been forgiven. And that is all of him, and therefore all to his glory, and all to our good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to not only understand, but to obey this. May your grace be poured out in our church fellowship. That we would be those who do our part to honor the people who have taken on the responsibility and the authority and the accountability of leadership. For those leaders, I pray that they would take to heart everything that we've been instructed today and that they would look at that to make sure that they are in fact living up to your standard. For us as a whole, I pray that we would not avoid our responsibility to admonish and to encourage and to help. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the way that they have modeled that and do model that. And so I would ask that we would excel still more and not grow weary in doing what is good, namely that very correction, which can be so hard sometimes. I also ask that we would be a church that is filled with joy, a church that prays, and a church that is willing to give thanks in every situation, even for the people that we sometimes have to deal with patiently. May this be a place where bruised reeds can find stronger reeds to rest up against until they've healed. Never be broken off and cast away because that is not how you would do it. Our example, our Lord, our Savior, and our King in whose name we pray, amen.